0: Uh, Let's come to God in prayer as we um, think about Deuteronomy 26 together. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are the good and gracious God. Father, help us to see that in this passage tonight. And Lord, as we think about your greatness, help us to focus our attention, particularly on your great Saviour, Jesus, who saved us even though uh, we were sinners. Father, help us to get a bigger view of you, a bigger view of your son Jesus tonight, and help us to respond in thankfulness that overflows. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, When we see a good deed take place, I I think it makes us happy. When we see a really good deed take place, it starts to transform us. Uh, I think we've seen this with regard to our firefighters in the recent bushfire crisis. Australia has been captured by the remarkably good deeds of our fireys, who we see on the news willingly putting themselves in harm's way to save property and lives. Across the country, many people are experiencing, I think, a profound sense of thankfulness to these guys a desire to be generous to those affected in need, and a baseline feeling that these guys are just awesome and they're worthy of being honoured. This feeling was captured perfectly when Sydney chose to project this image on the Opera House, an image of the fireies that just say, thank you, fireies. And, of course, this positive feeling is particularly true of those whose properties have been directly saved by the firefighters, Take, for example, Michelle and Maisie Roberts, a mother and daughter who own a cafe in Malacuda. They were so transformed by the selfless work of the Fieries, uh, and out of thankfulness, they decided to actually just start offering them free coffee and food. And it didn't actually just stop at the Fieries, they actually started opening it up to locals and then to all the visitors in the town. See, these women were transformed by what the Fieries had done in their community, And they showed it in deep thankfulness, selfless generosity, and great devotion to the cause. Well, in Deuteronomy 26, God is calling Israel to be transformed by his goodness to them. A goodness that exceeds even that of our fieries which we've come to love. God had rescued Israel from Egypt God had made them his special people. God was bringing them into a new and wonderful home in the promised land. And now God's desire for Israel is that they live with a deep sense of thankfulness. Thankfulness that is expressed in generosity and and great devotion to the law that he has given them. So as we think about God's goodness to Israel in Deuteronomy 26 and how they would respond, we're going to think about the greater grace, the greater goodness that we have received through Jesus and therefore the greater reason we have to live thankful, generous and devoted lives to him. So first, Israel is to be so transformed by God that they become people with thankful hearts. And I think it's difficult to actually live in constant thankfulness. You see, if someone does something kind for us, we might initially be thankful. But over time, that thankfulness can wear off. You know how it goes. Someone might lend us their car free of charge. Now, initially, we're thinking, this is awesome. No more PTing. Uh, no more relying on other people for rides. And so initially, we're really thankful for their kindness. But then after a few months, that feeling kind of wears off. And we start grumbling. Why didn't they fix the radio in this car before they gave it to me? Why did they choose such an ugly colour? I wish I was driving a red car instead of a green one. You see, it's kind of scary how quickly our hearts can move from thankfulness To thanklessness. And that was actually a real risk for Israel as she prepared to take possession of the promised land that God was giving her to settle in. See, God doesn't want Israel's thankfulness to him to wear off. We know from Israel's past that when that happens it's a quick descent into pride, idolatry, judgment. And so that's why God tells Israel to establish a regular ritual in the promised land, a practice of worship in which they can cultivate their thankfulness into the future in an ongoing way. They're to bring a basket of uh, the first fruits of their harvest to the place of worship and recite the account of God's goodness to them. See, verses 1 to 2 laid out for us. When you have entered the land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance and have taken possession of it and settled in it, take some of the first fruits of all that you produce from the soil of the land the Lord your God is giving you and put them in a basket. Then go to the place the Lord your God will choose as a dwelling for his name. So you can imagine that the roads throughout the promised land are going to be pretty busy at the start of harvest all these people carrying their baskets of fruit and veg to the place of worship. Uh, now, if the Bort annual, congregation, uh, annual agricultural show taught me anything, it's that a basket of fruit is never just a basket of fruit. It's a sign of something much more. You see, every year at the Bort show, where I grew up in the country, uh, farmers and gardeners from all over the area would bring in baskets of their finest fruit, veggies. uh, They even brought in ducks and chickens uh, in the hope that they would win first prize uh, for their produce. So, for example, if you won first prize for your basket or your plate of lemons, you were in many ways declared to be the best lemon grower in town. So you see how the plate of lemons is not just a plate of lemons, it's a statement about you and your wonderful lemon growing capacities. You see, the basket of first fruits that Israel was to bring before God was not just simply a basket of fruit and veggie. It too was a sign or a statement, but it was not a sign of the farmer's greatness, but of God's greatness, and this is actually made explicit through Israel's creed that they are to recite when they bring this basket in before the priests. Uh, It's a creed that recounts the history of God's goodness to Israel, and I think there are really four major aspects of God's goodness that Israel affirms in this creed that they read out. First, Israel declares God's faithfulness to them. Notice that in verse 3 of your Bibles. Israel is to say to the priests in, uh, uh, priest in office at the time, I declare today to the Lord your God that I have come to the land the Lord swore to our ancestors to give us. You see, this Israelite's holding this basket of fruit and essentially saying, We're holding this basket of fruit because God keeps his promises. He promised us land and now we're reaping the benefits, literally. And we see Israel affirming God's faithfulness throughout this chapter. And we see it in verses 15, 18, verse 19, all have the same words. As you promised, Lord. God's faithfulness. Second, they declare God's great they declare God's great love for them. And we see that in verses 5 to 7 of their creed. They recount in verse 5 how their ancestor, who we assume is Jacob, went down to Egypt with his family, and how in time Jacob's family and descendants became a great nation in Egypt, powerful and numerous. But then in verse 6, But the Egyptians mistreated us and made us suffer, subjecting us to harsh labor. Then we cried out to the Lord, the God of our ancestors, and the Lord heard our voice he saw our misery, toil, and oppression. See, so Israel saying, we're holding this basket of fruit because God loves us. When we were suffering back in Egypt, he didn't ignore us. He heard our cries. He saw our misery. Our pain meant something to him because he loves us. But third, Israel declares God's great power to help them. We see it in verse 8 of the creed. So the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great terror and with signs and wonders. We're holding this basket of fruit because of God's power. It wasn't our own strength that forced Pharaoh to let us go, it wasn't our own strength that drove out those Canaanite giants from the promised land. It was God's strength, God's power. But fourth, Israel declares God's amazing grace in this creed. See, in the end, God had simply chosen to be utterly gracious to Israel. See, it was one thing to save them from Egypt. It was another thing to make them his people, and then another thing to give them their own land that was wonderful in every way. But that's what God does. Look at verse 9 to 10. He brought us to this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And now I bring the first fruits of the soil that you, Lord, have given me. We're holding this basket of first fruits fruit, veg, crops, because of your grace, God. We didn't deserve it. We've shown over the past 40 years that we're sinful wretches. But God is gracious to us. So Israel's basket of first fruits was to be more than just a basket of really nice fruit and veg. It was to stand as evidence of God's faithfulness, his love, power, and grace. Israel was to be reminded of God's goodness to her, and she was to respond in thankfulness. And you see it there at halfway through verse 10 into 11, Israel is told to place that basket before the Lord your God and bow down to him. Then you and the Levites and the foreigners residing among you shall rejoice in all the good things that the Lord your God has given to you and your household. Moses is saying, Israel, worship the God who has been good to you. Then throw a party in thanks for what he's done. See, these verses remind us that what God wants first and foremost from his people is thankfulness for his goodness to them. And if you're a believer in Jesus here tonight, you have even more reason than Israel to be thankful to God. See, I mean, Israel's story of rescue and relationship, that is amazing. But our story, those of us who have come to know Jesus, it's even better in fact, just think about what we could do or what we could declare as people of Jesus. Uh, if I was to use some of the terms found in Israel's Creed in verses 3 to 10, it might sound something like this. I declare today that I have come into the eternal life that the Lord Jesus swore to give to his followers. We were a wandering people, lost in spiritual darkness, oppressed by our sin, mistreating others and being mistreated. Recognizing the judgment we deserved, we cried out to the Lord Jesus, God's saviour of sinners, and the Lord Jesus heard our cry and saw our misery and oppression. So the Lord Jesus brought us out from spiritual darkness and into his kingdom of light. He did this through His mighty power of sin and death, demonstrated in His death for sins and resurrection to life. He brought us to this new life, a life with God that will never end and will one day be filled with the eternal blessings of unbroken happiness and sinless perfection. You see, we have an amazing story to declare as Christians. And God wants the message of his goodness to us to captivate our hearts. He wants us to see the faithfulness, love, power, and grace of Jesus. And I think like Israel, God wants us to make, take time in our day, our week, our month, our year, to remember that. That's why it's good to pause at Christmas and Easter to remember and recite the gospel message. That's why it's good that we recite the Apostles' Creed, the God that we worship, as we come to the Lord's table month by month. That's why it's good that we say grace before every meal. As I've said in the past, grace is, I think, a daily way we can train ourselves to be a thankful people, thankful for God's provision of material needs as well as our spiritual needs too, though. And I was actually thinking that Recently, that living thankful lives is actually a really good witness to those around us of Jesus. We've had some of our neighbours over for meals recently, and in in light of this, Ruth and I have started to think a bit more intentionally about what we'll actually say when we get to that sort of grace moment of the evening. Um, We figure that they know that we're Christian. They're on our turf. They're not going to be shocked if we pray. So let's think about how we pray in a space of a sentence or two that shows our thanks to God as the ultimate provider of our food and our eternal life. You see, if we are truly thankful for what God has given to us in Jesus, it's actually right that other people see that. I mean, trust me, I can easily just be another whingy neighbour Someone that whinges about the garbage collection not happening properly. Someone that whinges about the works going on next door. But I don't want to be just a whingy neighbor. I want to show them that I have something to be thankful about. Uh, in Colossians 2, the Apostle Paul writes that Christians' lives are to be so shaped by the uh, gospel, by Jesus, so rooted in him, that we are overflowing with thankfulness to God. God wants us to have thankful hearts in response to his goodness. But second, Israel is to be so transformed by God's goodness that they become people who live with generous hearts. Uh, when you begin to, over, to overflow with thankfulness, uh, generosity is something you just kind of want to show. Uh, it's much like the, ca- uh, the, the ladies in the cafe in Malacuda. Uh, Their generosity just flowed out because they were thankful to the fireys. It flowed to the fireys, to the locals, to the visitors. God is telling Israel in verses 12 to 15 that he wants them to respond to his generosity to them by showing generosity to the needy in their land. So God, God gives Israel a law by which they could express their generosity to the needy around them. Now, if you recall Deuteronomy chapter 14, Israel was commanded there to set aside a tenth of all their produce as a tithe, it was called, each year. Uh, They were told to eat this tithe in the presence of the Lord in celebration of his goodness to them. But every third year, there was to be a special tithe, specifically set aside for the sake of the poor and disadvantaged in the land of Israel. Uh, This tithe was given so that these uh, disadvantaged people could eat and be satisfied and also celebrate. It was given to the Levites, who had been given no allotment of land by God, to the foreigner, who may have been treated with a bit of scepticism by the locals, to the fatherless and the widows, economically disadvantaged. Now, when I was growing up in Bort, again, second Bort reference for tonight... Uh, we used to do this thing at the end of every harvest in our church called Harvest Thanksgiving. Is anyone from the country and did that in their church? We can always rely on Jane. Thank you, Kate. Um, we did what was called Harvest Thanksgiving. It was a time in the year when the families of the congregations, both, both farmers and townies, uh, would bring a whole bunch of non-perishable goods and sit them at the front of our church before they were shipped out Uh, to help people in need. Now, in reflection, I've been reflecting about this uh, over the last week, and it was actually a really good example of a church showing thankful generosity to God for the harvest that had just happened. But that's not always how I thought about it as a kid. Uh, I remember sitting in church on a number of different Harvest Thanksgiving Sundays Just staring at all those canned goods when the preacher yapped away in the front of the church, Um, and I just remember thinking, I wonder how many people have just done a massive spring clean of their pantry, and half of that stuff is almost ready to expire, and they're just kind of getting rid of it, you know, canned beetroot and all sorts of things. Now that was probably me just being a bit of a cynical kid, and. Look, I don't think that probably would have happened in too much, uh, hopefully not too much. Um, but you think about it, if that actually did happen a lot, it'd be kind of dodgy, wouldn't it? You know, what is supposed to be a good gift is suddenly corrupted by our stinginess, wanting to just offload the almost-off stuff. So when Israel comes into the Promised Land, uh, and into the presence of the Lord, after they've distributed their tithe to the needy, God tells them. Uh, God tells them to affirm that they have not been dodgy with their tithe. Israel is to declare to God that they have not taken a good and generous offering, and corrupted it through evil practices. Uh, it's a little hard to know for sure what the practices of verse 14. Are actually referring to, you'll notice that Israel has to declare that they didn't eat any of the tithe while in mourning, Uh, they didn't handle it when they're unclean, and they didn't offer any part of it to the dead. Um, Some Bible scholars uh, think that those things might all be allusions to Canaanite worship, Uh, and if that's so, then Israel's making clear that they're not giving any of their worship to any other god but the Lord, who has given them all they have. Uh, But the overarching point, I think, is that Israel is saying we haven't defiled this offering, God. We have been generous and pure of heart in the process, as you've commanded us. True and pure generosity comes from a deep conviction that God and God alone is and will be good to you. So you don't have to be stingy or give your love to any other God. And so with pure hearts, Israel is told in verse 15 to keep asking the Lord who gives generously to keep blessing her in the land he's given them. Notice that in verse 15. Look down from heaven, your holy dwelling place, and bless your people, Israel, and the land you have given us as you promised on oath to our ancestors, a land flowing with milk and honey. So what will it look like for us to cultivate a heart of generosity that pleases God? like Israel, I think we first have to remember how generous God has been to us. Remember, the tithe law follows immediately after Israel's declaration of God's goodness to them all through verses 3 to 11. Israel had been shown great generosity by God. And with joyful and obedient hearts, they were now called in this next law to extend that generosity to others. Now, the New Testament doesn't call followers of Jesus, uh, us Christians, to specifically give a tenth of all that we bring in. Uh, it simply says that we should give what we have decided in our hearts to give and that we should do it cheerfully. Uh, but Paul also says in Second Corinthians chapter eight, previous chapter, that it's actually Jesus' great generosity to us that should shape and direct our generosity To others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. Uh, This complex diagram kind of summarizes the concept I'm getting at here. See, because of God's generosity to needy sinners like us, vertical arrow, we are to be generous to those in need as a demonstration of that thankful and cheerful obedience, horizontal arrow. Now, maybe some of us give a tenth, maybe some of us give more, maybe some need to give less for various reasons. We're all in different financial circumstances, so our ability to show generosity, uh, maybe particularly to the poor and generous, and that might look different. But all of this, I think, Need to actually ask ourselves, what might it look like for me in my circumstances to express my thanks to Jesus by showing generosity to someone else in need? You know, maybe it's giving to a charity like the Barnabas Fund who looks out for persecuted Christians, maybe to Compassion or some other charity organization who cares for those in need in other countries. Maybe it's giving the support to the bushfire victims. It doesn't always mean giving money, does it? Maybe it means inviting a cash-strapped student over for a meal once in a while to save them having me goring noodles for the fifth time that week. Maybe it simply means offering to help an elderly neighbour with a job or two around the house or yard, and actually, I think that simple act is both an opportunity to show generosity that pleases God, but also to share the gospel. Now, last year, I got chatting to one of my elderly neighbors, who saw me mowing my front lawn. and We chatted for a bit. I'd already had a few conversations about Christianity with this lady. And I mentioned that I was actually happy to mow her nature strip as well. Take me two seconds. Okay, thank you, she said. That'd be lovely if you could. And so right after I mowed her nature strip, I thought well, it was not going to take me too long to knock off her front lawn as well. So I did her front lawn as well. Um, but when she saw that I had mowed her front lawn and she found me in my front garden again, she came over all in a flap, hustling over, and, and she had a $5 note in her hand. And she said, you said you were just going to do the nature strip. Not my whole front lawn. You need to take this money. Uh, and I told her, no, it's okay. I don't want to take your money. No, no, no. You have to take this money. And then I said to her, honestly, it's okay. I was happy to do it. And then I said, well, you've heard me speak about Jesus before today. Well, Christians are happy to be generous because we know how generous God has been in sending Jesus to us. So we're actually okay doing things like this because we know a generous God. At this point, tears kind of began to well up. And she said this, I know that's your religion, love, but this is mine. And she held out that $5 note. Now at that moment, I thought, we not only have the true religion, but the best one. It's so natural, isn't it, for us to think in transactionary terms when it comes to God. Do good, and God might give you good. And see, this is the way that most other religions work. But you see, when we show through our actions that we worship a God who is generous to undeserving people, well, I think that's striking and a wonderful message for others to see and hear. God wants us to have generous hearts spurred on by the gospel. Third point, Israel is to be transformed by God's goodness to them that they respond with wholehearted devotion to him and to his law. Uh, Well, by this point in Israel's history, when they're just about ready to enter the Promised Land, uh, God has been in covenant relationship with Israel for about 40 years. Now, throughout this time, most of which was spent with them wandering in the desert, you might recall, Israel struggled to be a thankful and faithful people uh, that she was supposed to be. But because God is gracious and good, he lets Israel know at this point, just before they move into the promised land, that he is still utterly committed to her, despite who she's proven to be. And that's why God renews or reaffirms his covenant relationship with Israel. And you see that come out strongly in the last verses of our chapter, 16 to 19. Uh, If you've ever seen or heard um, of a vow renewal ceremony, this is actually kind of an okay illustration. They're more common in the U.S., of course. Uh, It's basically like having another wedding, but the couple is not making new vows, but renewing or reaffirming the wedding vows that they already made. In most cases, it's a way of commemorating a love that has deepened or matured between the couple over time. And it's also an excuse to just dress up and have another party. Well, in these last verses, God is renewing, reaffirming his covenant relationship with Israel and declaring to them that he is still and will continue to be utterly devoted to them. And so for Israel, on her part, she must likewise respond with devotion, a commitment to obeying God. See, look at that. It comes out in verses 16 and 17 in your Bibles. Verse 16, The Lord your God commands you this day to follow these decrees and laws. Carefully observe them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared this day that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in obedience with him, that you will keep his decrees, commands, and laws, that you will listen to him. See, what God is looking for is devoted heart from Israel. He wants her to keep her marriage vows, as it were. And that's why they promise we will obey, we will keep, we will listen to you. And it's certainly right that Israel does this because, I mean, look at the devotion that God has to her. Look at it. It comes out in verses 18 and 19. And the Lord has declared this day that you are his people, his treasured possession as he promised, and that you were to keep all his commands. He has declared that he will set you in praise, fame, and honor high above all the nations he has made and that you will be a people holy to the Lord your God, as he is promised. See, God had graciously chosen Israel among all the other nations. He had made her his special treasure. He now promised that he would bless her among the nations so that through Israel, the true God would be glorified. In short, God had given everything to Israel, and what he wants in thankful response, is Israel's heart. God wants her devotion to him alone as her faithful and good God. But if you go on to read the rest of the Old Testament, that's actually the tragedy of Israel's story. The tragedy is that they were never ultimately devoted to God, but disloyal. They gave up their worship to other idols. They lived on their own terms, not God's terms. Uh, They stopped being thankful, generous, devoted. Instead of giving God the praise that he deserved, they actually robbed God of that praise and glory and gave it to worthless idols. It's almost like the contrast between the, the thankful attitude Of those two cafe owners in Malacuta, with the thankless and selfish attitude of two teenagers who were arrested for looting fire affected communities. You see, both of these stories appeared in the news. While the fireys were putting their necks out on the line, both of these things were happening. One story is beautiful, the other is ugly. Israel was called to be lovers like that cafe owner. But they, she ended up being looters like these teenagers. And God judges her for it. She's kicked out of the promised land. But here's the really confronting truth that the Bible tells us it's actually not just Israel who act like those teens. It's all of us. The Bible tells us that all of us have sinned, not just Israel. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. We've all robbed him of the thanks and glory he deserves. We've all abused his gift of life to us and lived our way, not his way. God's word says we all deserve to be taken away by God in a divvy van and driven to his judgment. But in God's great mercy, in his great kindness, which we've been thinking about tonight, spiritual looters like us have hope in Jesus. Through faith in Jesus, we are forgiven of that great crime, declared righteous in God's sight and promised life now instead of judgment and death. See, if we're going to be lovers who are devoted to Jesus as God wants us to be, we first have to see that we are looters who have robbed God. Now, if you aren't sure about where you stand with God tonight, well, come and speak to me or another Christian that you've come here with, but that's actually a wonderful message that you don't want to just let pass you by. Looters, forgiven restored and right with God through faith in Jesus. But if you are a Christian here tonight, I suspect that you know the struggle we have in our hearts to live a life marked by this kind of stuff, marked by genuine thankfulness, generosity, and devotion. I know that struggle. See, for every gospel conversation I have with a neighbor, There's another 10 opportunities that I don't take because I'm actually fearful, not thankful. For every nature strip I mow, there are another 20 other opportunities to serve that I avoid because my heart's actually marked by selfishness, not just generosity. And I can only imagine that many of you actually feel the same way. Even as followers of Jesus, we find it hard to live God's way. We wish we were more thankful, more generous, more devoted. And perhaps you're here tonight, you're feeling particularly discouraged by that reality. Well, let me just close by encouraging you not to be discouraged, but hopeful. Because with our Saviour Jesus, as we've been thinking about tonight, there's always hope. You see, Jesus gives us the promise of forgiveness when we fail to live his way. If you're feeling unsettled by the fact that you're not as thankful, generous, or devoted as you should be, if you're wondering whether God even accepts you at this point, well, take hope in the fact that Jesus has forgiven you of your sin, if your faith is in him, and has made you right with God through his death and resurrection. Uh, Martin Luther, the great reformer of the 16th century, he wrote these wonderful words. So when the devil throws your sin in your face and declares that you deserve death and hell, tell him this. I admit that I deserve death and hell. What of it? For I know the one who suffered and made satisfaction on my behalf. His name is Jesus Christ son of god and where he is there i shall be also isn't that a wonderful statement to remember because jesus has been good and gracious to us we have the hope of forgiveness and eternal life and in jesus we also have a great motivation for change as we reflect again and again on the deep love and goodness that led him to the cross for us. Earlier this week, Ruth and I celebrated nine years of marriage. And on that day, one of my friends sent me a message that says that said this, congrats for not killing each other after nine years, guys. Keep making loving each other a priority in the midst of weariness and you won't regret it. God has been so good to us in Jesus. If we keep trusting him in the midst of all our weariness, we won't regret it. So let's go into this week with a renewed sense of thankfulness for what Jesus has done for us. Thankfulness that overflows in acts of generosity and genuine devotion to our Saviour. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have been so good to us in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that he came to die for our sins and that by dying for our sins, we can be forgiven. Thank you that you raised Jesus from the dead and have given us a sure um, promise in that resurrection that we too will have life forever, resurrection life with you into eternity. You are so good to us, Lord. May we be transformed by your goodness. Thankful people, generous people, devoted people. Amen.